and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the April 26th broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. We are nearing the 100-day mark of a full white supremacy coup. On this day in history, the world's worst nuclear power plant accident occurred at the Chernobyl Nuclear Power Station in the Soviet Union during 1986. The literal translation of the word Chernobyl is wormwood. Tonight we'll be joined by activists involved in tomorrow's rally and march called Stop the Raids in New York, where authorities are using RICO charges to indiscriminately raid homes and round up people of color. If they get away with it now, Chi-Town best beware for worse. Our list of potential stories to cover include a re-examination of Wisconsin's human rights crisis as a world leader in mass incarceration and institutional racism. It is necessary after prosecutors say that a Milwaukee County uh, jail officers cut off an inmate's water for seven consecutive days before the man died of dehydration. Wisconsin is Ferguson. Also from the LA Times, we share a very important court infighting hearing where judges say there is an epidemic of prosecutorial misconduct where prosecutors have presented false evidence but were never investigated or disciplined. We want to share the story a five foot four, eighteen year old Graham Dyer, who was left brain dead by a 2013 <clears throat> encounter with the Mesquite police. The tapes have come out, and the monstrous brutality that these officers displayed is beyond belief. Until recently, the, those tapes were kept secret. It's official. The SCOTUS has weighed in and made a verdict. Police can now shoot an unarmed man in the back, and if they say it was necessary, with no proof at all. There is no need for a trial. In essence, making a statement akin to papal infallibility, police ex cathedra. A study that should be titled, What Black People Done Already Told Us, 
published in the American Journal of Public Health found that delinquent non-Hispanic whites are more likely to abuse hard drugs such as cocaine or opiates than their black counterparts. After 12 years of research, they found that whites were more than 30 times likely to have cocaine use disorders, 50 times more likely to develop opiate use disorder, and 18 times more likely to have PCP use disorder than blacks. In another study that should have the same title, researchers determined that nearly 40% of the U.S. prison population, 576,000 human beings, are behind bars with no compelling public safety reason. This according to a new report from the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. In time, if time allows, we'll tell you about the sinister, inhuman way prison officials are using women's specific sanitary needs as bargaining chips in rapes, molestations, and abuses. These well-documented stories include Rose M. Singer Center on the infamous Rikers Island, where about 600 women usually are in prison, and Alabama's Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women. We'll also have our regular segments, which include the Abolitionist in Profile, which is William Still today, October 7th to July 14th, 1821, 1902, our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, who is Rodriguez Crawford, and our new segment, for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion, remembering Gabriel's conspiracy of 1800. If you got a question or a comment, just call us toll-free at 866-510-9025. And you can log in and chat with others and us by going to uberconference.com slash blacktalkradionetwork. Once again, I'm Max Parthas, and I'm about out of breath. Who's happening, brother Scotty Reed? Hey, what's up, Max? Good to uh, talk to you again today, man. Yeah, man, it's 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 always a good time to be here because you know I just feel like a witness. You know what I mean? Like I could testify, brother. You could testify. Johanna could testify. <laughs> and so you just get to see the the change and the times and the events, and, and you know. If you have that forward vision, you can see things unfolding and where they're going. Um, I do have a quick note. We had a last-minute change uh, in our guests. We were supposed to be joined by abolitionists uh, who is on a prison plantation right now, but they would not approve the 866 number and I should have sent them the 704 number for our conference line, and maybe they would not have picked up on the fact that it was a conference line. But so, but we did find um, a replacement. Uh, Tag, who is a Black Talk Media Project contributor, will be joining us, but we'll also be joined by uh, Ren, who is a member of the international, uh, what is it, the IWOC? I forget what that stands for. Yes. Was it the International Workers? What? Yes, the, uh, here, I'll, I'll uh, put it in New Abolitionist Radio so we can all see it. But um, this person is also a Bronx 120 supporter. And this is a story we have reported on uh, from the beginning on this program, as well as I've done some commentaries uh, talking about RICO. Um, charges being abused to target young people in black and brown communities. And as we pointed out from the Ferguson report, that RICO charges is what 
the NYPD should be charged with for running a criminal uh, conspiracy to to raise revenue for the city. So those brothers, uh, um, well, I'm, I'm assuming that Ren is a brother, but they will be joining us here in just about 10 minutes, a little less than 10 minutes. Okay, no doubt. That's the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. Thank you, Max. I, I forgot um, the acronym. Indeed, brother. You know, like I was just saying, you know, we're witnesses to seeing these things manifest. Uh, you know, an incarcerated workers organizing committee, just that idea that one exists now. Where you need to try to unionize uh, prisoners because they're being exploited in order to enrich international private for profit corporations and companies is akin to what happened uh, back, I think it was in the early 1900s, where they had a uh, conflict between slave laborers using convict leasing at the time and the Appalachian miners that ended up in a massacre. Hmm. Yeah, man. So I, I tell you, man, I was really depressed over the past couple of days, but. You know, I was looking forward to tonight's program because this program really, I, I believe, you know, just really gives me a purpose, man. And what I feel like my main calling is, which is abolitionism. Yeah, man, I, I, I'm with you, brother, all the way, uh, all the way. Uh, you know, Sagittarius, uh, born around the same time, kind of straight to the point type guys. So for me, after studying this tree for so long, I just want to go for the roots. I'm tired of messing with the pruning branches. You know what I mean? I'm just tired of pruning branches. This thing has got to come up, the roots and all. It's, it's got to end. And from our perspective and what is quickly becoming perspective of many, many others across the globe is that abolition, slavery abolition is the answer to that. And there's even a series of things that we need to achieve, which we have been doing now, if you've been tuning in for the past five years, uh, achieving the goals we set out to, to do in order to solve this problem. Um, Max, if you could remind me um, about our last week's uh, guest and uh, when he will be, when the election is. Uh, it's David Coma, David Coma for Congress, and I believe the election is the 20th. But uh, it may be the 17th. I'll look it up, but I'm pretty sure. Next it's month? Of June. Oh, okay, uh, of June. Oh, okay, because I had seen that there was a, a election in the 3rd District of of um, South Carolina, some kind of special election, and I knew he was in the 5th District, or, but I wasn't sure um, when they were supposed to vote on that. Yeah, we got some elections going on here in South Carolina where one congresswoman or potential congresswoman did a commercial where she was standing there with an assault rifle uh, doing this. Um, I don't know what the hell it was supposed to be, man, but it was just so South Carolina. Like, you see us, our white women will shoot you. That's how we roll. <laughs> wow. It's crazy, man. It is crazy here in South Carolina. You know, we had to deal with some things for sure. I'm looking forward to hearing from TAG as well as the representatives from IWOC who we have worked with before here on New Abolitionist Radio, uh, including in the prison labor work strike. Again, these are historical things, people. The largest slavery rebellion 
in the history of the United States didn't happen pre-1865. It happened here <laughs> in this age. Man, right. you know what I mean? Where workers organized across the country in prisons and managed to go on strike simultaneously to the point where California alone was, uh, to the best records that I've heard, losing hundreds of millions of dollars in labor. Mm. Well, let me give some uh, more background. Uh, we should be joined by our guests at any moment now. Um, if you are one of the guests and you're on the line, hit star star to unmute yourself because I'm not sure what your phone numbers would be and we have other people on the board. But there's going to be a rally and a march uh, tomorrow in New York City. It's called uh, Stop the Raids. You can find out more information by going to Bronx. 120.org uh, also check out reformrico.org and so you can join parents and community members as they rally and march at City Hall against the NYPD and federal gang raids and the RICO conspiracy charges that followed uh, families and poor neighborhoods are being targeted by militarized raids mm -hmm. and conspiracy laws Young people of color are being over-prosecuted, often based on where they live, how they dress, and who they grew up with. Uh, raids and RICO conspiracy charges won't solve violence. Uh, Community-based solutions will. And again, I remember when this story first uh, came out, uh, we actually had a mother whose son was a target of these raids where you know, she described it as a war zone, as, you know, they uh, launched flashbang grenades into the house and, and came in, you know, like terrorists and, and just really terrorized that family. Her son wasn't even there. Um, he was living with his father at the time. And, you know, it was just her and her two uh, minor daughters and and it was just I mean just listening to her describe that scenario scenario I mean I I just really couldn't imagine because I've never been through anything like that. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, there we go. We got Hi, somebody uh, on the line. Yeah, mm -hmm. this is Ren from Iowa Incorporated Workers Organizing Committee. Um, oh, well, I'm a Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Can you hear us? Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I can. Sorry. Uh, I'm just in a bit of a public space right now, um, unfortunately. Um, all right. Yeah, I just wanted to give a, a bit of update on the Bronx 120 case, if that's all right. Um, so some of us, uh, this past week, and it's ongoing for a couple more weeks, a lot of people are taking plea deals right now. Um mm. And we actually were at a sentencing of... Uh, three gentlemen uh, yesterday and uh, I, I just don't know how to describe the sentencing but just incredibly brutal um, you know people's families um, you know children their mothers their um, loved ones there um, the you know the court just being like the, their lawyers are white the judge is like an old white dude you know and you just like can't and there's there's no explanation for this system but white supremacy, you know, and the fact that people are getting criminalized for who they associate with, um, young black men, young black and brown men, you know. Um, one of the gentlemen, he 
um, was sent. He has been incarcerated for over a year now, and he just got released. They they just um, released him, which is a really joyful. Um, his family was present, but at the same time, like it's it, it's brutal to think this person lost a year of their life for absolutely like nothing, you know. And other young men of this case and other cases like this are are just you know losing their lives, their connections to loved ones. Um, by being incarcerated like this, you know? Well, yes, I, uh, let, I, I do believe we're uh, joined by TAG, but let me let me just say this. Um, she said, Ren, you said you don't know how to describe it other than white supremacy. Um, I, right, I, yeah. I, can, I can find another term. Slavery. There's a slave yeah, catcher. Right, yeah. yeah, this is slave catching in the modern era era of mm-hmm. slavery and human mm-hmm. trafficking. But I do I want to make sure that that is tag joining us. Tag, do we have you calling in from six four six? Yes, yes, it's me, it's everyone. Peace and welcome again, New Abolitionist Radio Tag. Uh, yeah, we're looking forward to hearing uh, the stories, sharing it with our audience, and the events of tomorrow how people can get involved and help. Yeah. If we could, just for those who have, because this has not been a story that has really been covered by mainstream media, so if, if we could get you tag or, or rim, whichever one, to give the listeners who may not have heard about the case a brief overview. Yes, definitely. I'll, I'll try my best um, as Y'all are aware, you know, this is a huge, uh, huge issue um, and very involved. So uh, I'll do my best to give an overview. Um, But essentially, a year ago tomorrow, uh, over 700 uh, slave catchers representing uh, six different uh, slave catching entities uh, descended on the Bronx, particularly the Eastchester area of the Bronx, um, for a terrorist raid, uh, you know, under the pretense of cracking down on gang activity. And uh, it was hailed as the largest so-called gang crackdown in New York City history um, at 120 individuals, uh, primarily uh, black youths. and in the wake of that uh, act of terror, you, you have now um, many of those individuals uh, still incarcerated, uh, mostly at the two federal uh, detention uh, centers or federal uh, facilities um, in New York, MDC and MCC, uh, as well as the fact that many individuals, uh, family members, and particularly mothers of those who were captured are now facing um, any number of issues, whether it be, um, you know, uh, facing eviction from their homes uh, is one of the main uh, issues that uh, heads are dealing with right now, uh, particularly those who live in uh, the uh, housing projects throughout the city, um, you know, that and 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 the main uh, housing projects that were targeted uh, in these raids, which have a permanent exclusion uh, clause uh, with respect to the the lease, 
that means that if one is arrested that lives in your household, uh, they essentially force you or coerce you into signing a document um, that promises that um, that you will not allow that person back into your household or back on the premises of the uh, housing project period, um, which is leading to you know eviction. So that's the racial displacement and, uh, slash just um, you know low income uh, individuals um, aspect um, of it, the displacement of those you know who um, are uh, the most most financially vulnerable um, you know in this city. So that's a part of the larger uh, displacement project that's going on through throughout the city and that's one of the main um, issues. Uh, involved in this case, but uh, again, there are, there are many, many um, you know issues around this. The fact that you know the feds uh, uh, you know create these uh, near impossible um, you know bars and barriers with respect to fighting these cases, which is of course leading to a lot of plea deals and um, individuals basically just feeling completely helpless. Uh, in the face of the the full terroristic brunt um, of of the state uh, targeted because of you know their racial classifications and because of their uh, income bracket. I have uh, been reading some of the information coming out of uh, the loop here, and as you said, like this goes back. I've got one article in front of me that goes back to January, where they were saying these militants style raid is an outgrowth of the NYPD's new precision, precision tactics and they were adopted at the NYPD's uh, use of stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional in 13 and it places gangs and crews right directly in the department's crosshairs and, you know back in the day we used to have crews but they were like hip hop crews it's this criminalization often of, of, of black life and I'm looking at another article where they have these faces of the people that uh, that they're publicly saying are criminals and they're going to hunt them down here. And every single one of these faces is a black face. It's like you can't find a white face in the bunch. It just doesn't exist. Uh, they have their official version, of course, saying that uh, residents are relieved that these wild, crazy criminals are out. And as you said, this is a narrative that they're putting on to people in order to, uh, I guess, continue their genocide. Yeah. and Sometimes I get a loss of word in some of this stuff there, Scotty. Yeah. You know, I remember some of the stories I had read, like a couple of the victims were actually in college, were in college at the time, mm -hmm. and they were being charged just based on you know, affiliations they had when they were still in the city, um, where you did have some gang members who were convicted of, of uh, manslaughter or murder. That's where the RICO came in, and these people had already served their time. But then all these years later, here they come charging everyone, even those n with no knowledge of it, you know, with uh, under RICO, criminal conspiracy. And and so he used the right words with slave catcher. Oh, mo oh, Tag knows the language. He knows the mm -hmm. correct language. It puts it in perspective, man. Uh, you know, they, they're just raiding people's houses and snatching black people up and throwing them in in jail cells. This is very familiar. This is not like a new thing that we've just been seeing for the first time. 
and that's where uh, we have to really come in agreement nationally. Yeah, uh, what it is we're dealing with. This is terrible, man. Another town is next, I think. Another thing that uh, Tag just pointed out that I find particularly troubling is is the restrictions on on public housing. And we can go back to the Clinton administration working with a Republican Congress with the well, what do they call it? The Welfare Reform Act. And where, you know, people, if they get a drug conviction or anything like that, they're barred permanently from public housing or, you know, even visiting their family members. But I mean, this is like collective punishment of of the family members for what someone has allegedly done and again you know i'm looking at this is punishment if tag is correct when he said that all it took was an arrest well you know a arrest shouldn't be the same as a conviction but again this dispels this notion that you're innocent until proven guilty when it's when in reality it's the reverse it's guilty until proven innocent um um uh Ren, did you have something you wanted to add yeah i just wanted to add um that you know as you said these strategies you know this has been an ongoing legacy and uh you know, since the Bronx 120 case a year ago, there's just been more and more raids in New York City. There was a raid around, uh, last week around um, at the in the Bronx and the Boston Secor houses, um, and it just goes to show that you know the the police state thinks that the strategy, like no one's going to challenge these strategies. You know, um, so it's really important for us to organize um, and show our presence and support for these people that are incarcerated um, in this really fucked up system. Word. Scotty, any questions? If, if I could if I could just expand on something that uh, that you mentioned, mm -hmm. Brother Scotty. Um what and it's and it's a, a two part, but you you were highlighting these uh, restrictions around public housing. Uh, for one, I think it's important to note, you know, for those that, I don't know if this is the case in other cities or, you know, in other regions with respect to public housing, but there are, there's essentially total surveillance with respect to public housing in New York City at this point. And, you know, it's been going on for a very long time and it's only ratcheted up. Um, it's exemplified in cases like the Bronx 120 case where you have teenagers and younger who have been, ha had their social media and otherwise surveilled for years and years. Um, you know, the, the, the level of social media uh, quote unquote evidence that's being used in this case and others it is extremely um, alarming and uh, disturbing. Uh, the the notion that you have slave catchers trolling young people's social media accounts, um, you know, posing as uh, you know other individuals, etc., in order to uh, basically try to implicate them in crimes or connect them with uh, you know these street families, so-called uh, gangs. Um, there there are floodlights that are 24 hours a day, you know, um, at, the, at the entrances of public housing all throughout the city. Uh, so, I mean, it's just 
it's insane the level of repression and surveillance uh, with all of that that goes on in the city in general. Um, it is uh, exponentially worse uh, with respect to public housing um, in the city. Uh, we were alerted to the fact that um, recently an initiative was put out uh, to give so-called free um, tablets to uh, young people in uh, in certain targeted public housing facilities. Um, and, you know, this is the kind of thing that basically allows the state to put its foot in the door and to monitor uh, children and, and young people um, in these public housing facilities. Uh, and just uh, one other point about how uh, long in the making, you know, uh, the, these terrorist raids, you know, are and, you know, the strategic uh, uh, value uh, with respect to the state and the slave catchers is this question of uh, so-called nuisance abatement, which is another form of state repression utilizing slave catchers to get into the homes of, uh, you know, uh, of individuals in low-income areas, primarily black um, individuals. Um, you know, this was also targeting the Bronx just a few years ago where they were claiming that, you know, untoward activities were occurring in people's uh, residence and just uh, essentially um, ev summarily evicting them from the area so that they can investigate. Um, and, you know, uh, this, this tactic was exposed by um, a ProPublica investigation that, that recently got an award for it. So that got exposed uh, just a few years ago. And as you mentioned, you know, the stop and frisk uh, tactics got exposed, even though that's still going on. And now they're onto these massive uh, t terroristic raids, you know, on our communities. How much do you feel um, is this a retaliation for the lawsuit against New York City that um, resulted in a federal judge ruling stop and frisk was unconstitutional. And, and I did hear you when you said that it's still going on. But it was of my opinion that this was a retaliation against communities of color uh, because they fought back against stop and frisk. Absolutely. It's, it's a retaliation, but at the same time, it's just an expression of the unbroken line of terrorism of our communities in New York City. And, of course, we know this is happening all throughout the country. But, you know, if it wasn't, if it wasn't stop and frisk, then it would be the so-called nuisance abatement. Then it would be the so-called gang raids. You know, they... The, the fact is, and y'all have reported on it numerous times, that when the NYPD did their so-called, uh, you know, strike or whatever, you, they, they were costing the city $10 million plus per week in revenue. So the fact is, slave catching is clearly one of the primary uh, means of revenue generation in the city, and uh, they're well aware of that and and they don't show any signs of uh you know trying to to stop doing what they're doing because it's earning them revenue and it's making sure that you know uh a population that has always been targeted in this city and across this country you know are under constant pressure 
and are constantly, you know, in fear of, of being uh, caught by slave catchers. There was an article that came out from NPR, which I have shared on New Abolitionist Radio, where they were talking about these blocks in New York that are called million-dollar blocks. And it mm -hmm. says the New York-based Justice Mapping Center has been, has been providing these kinds of visuals for more than a decade by mapping the residential addresses of every inmate in various prison systems. The center was made vividly clear, a concept called million-dollar blocks, areas where more than a million dollars is is being spent annually to incarcerate the residents of a single census block. You know, people wouldn't be in poverty if that million was going elsewhere. They wouldn't be right. more liable to be participating in crimes and doing whatever they need to do in order to make ends meet in such areas if that million dollars was spent on education as youths, if it was spent on determents as such as places where they could go and occupy their time and uh, bring out their artists or scientific or craftsmen side and explore different fields of education. They wouldn't have these problems. But you would rather spend a million dollars on a single block to put them in prison and jail than to help them stay out. That says a lot for everybody listening right there. How many different organizations came together to make this happen? Seven. Seven different uh, organizations, government organizations, which means that at any moment they could even apply the Patriot Act to this. Yeah, yeah um, the, uh, I do believe that um, the feds were involved as well. And I just want to make the point... I just want to make the point to people that these raids occurred while Attorney General Loretta Lynch was still in office, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Uh, yes, yes, that's correct. Yes, yeah, so I, I just wanted to point that out because people have a tendency to play partisan games when our oppression and slavery has always been a bipartisan affair and it has had support from members of both the uh, dominant political parties in this country. We've seen what the New York Police Department has attempted to justify as regular policing in their community. And we uh, do not call that policing. We call that genocide. What happened to Eric Garner uh, what happened yeah. to Ramali Graham, what happened to Sean Bell, what happened to Abby, uh, Diallo, and so many others is not normal everyday policing. Um, I did a video recently called All We Want to Do Is Be Free where we had the reports from the New York police who came on national people and said, we're out hunting people. And these are the people we're hunting to fill quotas. And it also has the testimony of people who were being arrested, like a Khalif Browder, and sent into places like Rikers Island. Um, this this really just got to end. It's constitutional violations that have gone so far out of the box that we don't even have a constitution in place anymore. There's no Sixth Amendment rights, no Eighth Amendment rights, no Fourth Amendment rights. What the hell are we dying for in wars if we don't have that? And you're paying taxes for police forces who are not there to defend or protect you. They're there to hunt you. Okay. Uh, anything else you guys want to say and uh, tell people 
where to meet you tomorrow in order to be a part of this march and rally and uh, what you're hoping to expect uh, out of this. Yeah, so uh, the rally will be outside of City Hall starting at 3. Then we'll make our way at 4 p.m. to the Attorney General office. And then at 5, we will be outside of uh, MTC prison. Um, and maybe Ty could speak a bit about what we're hoping to get out of this. Definitely. Uh, one of the things certainly is just to continue to raise awareness around this issue. Um, much respect to uh, Black Talk Radio Network uh, in general and New Abolitionist Radio and, um, you know, the, the handful of other uh, programs out there that have really covered uh, this issue. Um, unfortunately, but, you know, as we should expect, you know, the dependent corporate mainstream uh, media outlets uh, are not or stopped covering it after, you know, the extremely um, sensational reports that, you know, flooded the news uh, on the day of the raid itself, you know, um, since then there has been complete silence on this issue. So certainly raising awareness about the Bronx 120, raising awareness about these raids more generally uh, in New York City because, you know, as was mentioned, these these kinds of raids are happening in other places uh, in the U.S. and um, it's less familiar terrain uh, for those of us in New York City. Uh, it's just been these past few years that they've been employing this particular tactic to, to try and enslave uh, as many of us as possible. So, Definitely to raise the awareness on these issues, to uh, raise awareness around carceral slavery more generally, and to you know continue to connect with others who uh, who are fighting against it. Uh, you know, th th those are the things that that I'm uh, expecting and and looking out for. So you know, um, anyone that's in the area that um, is able to. You know, we'll we'll be out there tomorrow, and you know, we will continue to be uh, fighting against these raids um, and these terroristic tactics on the part of uh, New York City slave catchers. You know, Bronx One Hundred and Twenty. Yeah, I want um, to discuss a possible solution, which we saw, you know, a lawsuit filed in the past against uh, NYPD in New York City overstop and frisk and I feel like that that can become a valuable tool as we reported um, on I think it was the Southern Poverty Law Center that attacked a bail bonds company and suing them in federal court on RICO charges um, we also saw in kind of unrelated but we saw a anti uh, cannabis organization use RICO laws to shut down a legal pot dispensary in Colorado. Uh, the business that they targeted with that RICO lawsuit um, just simply did not have the funds to fight the lawsuit, so they never even opened their doors. So, But I feel 
like if we can gather the appropriate evidence that perhaps, you know, we could flip the script and file RICO charges on police departments like the NYPD because I believe it is organized crime and they have um, uh, given us the evidence with their little petulant uh, childlike work stoppage to just because the mayor said he had to talk to his black son about police and they did the work stoppage and the city lost $10 million. Then you also have on video um, it was a news report where you had about nine different NYPD slave catchers admit that that's what they were doing. Uh, they said that we're the hunters and you're the prey, and we're forced to go out and meet these quotas. So I feel like perhaps, you know, someone in those affected areas that will have standing in the courts would be well advised to flip the script and charge these departments under RICO in civil lawsuits. Any thoughts on that? Anybody? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um as as y'all have uh, pointed out, these these slave catching operations really do need to be uh, put up on on RICO charges themselves, uh, rather than you know uh, taking people down, you know, encaging people behind uh, so-called RICO activity um, under completely uh, flimsy evidence and, and, and cases. So um, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, you know, some of the lawyers that we've uh, managed to speak with around this over the past year or so um, have spoken toward, you know, if not that specific tactic, some of the kind of longer term legal strategies that may be possible, you know, as they continue to violate people in this way, as people become more aware of it, you know, uh, actually challenging them on the legal level. But I would just uh, mention, because we were uh, down at the courthouse just uh, two days ago, or pardon, just yesterday, um, you know, uh, for court support around uh, members of the Bronx 120 who had sentencing, and in that same federal courthouse, they were also sentencing a few uh, former slave catchers behind this ongoing corruption scandal that, you know, quiet is kept, you know, is being, is continuing out here, even though, uh, you know, we're, we're not really being flooded with information about, about that the way that we are, you know, in, in these cases, um, you know, around so-called gangs or, or these, these street families, you know, um, but but the, the this corruption that has been going on is um, you know of course constant uh, and deep seated and you had uh, NYPD uh, commanders uh, you know involved in corruption bribery etc and people uh, basically fast tracking uh, guns to to their friends or to those that you know would pay them or buy them you know jewelry or what have you. But even though um, conspiracy was mentioned in those charges, I didn't see anything about trying to try them under RICO as, you know, uh, as, as a, a gang or as, an, uh, you know, a corrupt association uh, looking into, you know, the fullness of the impact of their actions, you know, and, and, and following up and investigating and indicting, you know, those individuals that they 
got these weapons too, et cetera. So uh, just in, in short, as we know, it, it, it's as much a question of the actual implementation as it is to, you know, the, a question of the, the, the laws on the books. So while it's clear as day that these are corrupt organizations and should be put up on RICO charges, you know, that's, it, it's, a, it, it, it's a tall order and, and a, a long-term uh, strategy that to me is very worthwhile while we, you know, on, this, on the daily end continue to combat this thing uh, any way we, we can. Yeah, so I, with the combined, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Max. I, I just want to say yes, it, it's very worthwhile. Um, we first theorized about that uh, after the Ferguson report, and how long was it, Max? About a year later, the Southern Poverty Law Center actually tried that case or filed that lawsuit. Was it in Mississippi yes. or Alabama against that Bell's Bonds company? And was able to shut them down. Yes, under RICO charges, 110 cities, they had to vacate from uh, providing services, private for-profit probation companies. So I think it is a very worthwhile proven strategy. You know, perhaps someone could consult with the Southern Poverty Law Center and look at that case and, and, and how they argued it in court and adopt that strategy across the nation. You know, I, I, I theorize about these things. I just wish that I was in a place where I had standing to file such a lawsuit, but I'm not. I live in a rural country area where, you know, I might not see, see a slave catcher in a month. So, uh, you know, I don't have standing there, um, you know, to file these type type of lawsuits, but especially, you know, the families that's being evicted uh, because of this and the communities that's being disrupted. I just really feel like they would be uh, well served to look into that. Max, did you have something? Uh, I'm in agreement with you, Scotty. This reminds me so much of Germany, you know, when they were looking for the Jews. Going to people's houses, trying. You have Jews here. Where's the Jews? That's what they're doing here now with us. These are crimes against humanity, and they're only getting worse and getting ramped up because we're letting them get away with it. And as Frederick Douglass explained to us, you'll find out the limits of what people are able to put up with by just watching. Um, and, and we're just putting up with this like it's okay, like we don't have any rights. Like you can violate our rights all day long, and it's okay as long as the public feels safe. You don't even have to be a bad person. You could just be labeled a bad person, and that makes them feel safer when they throw your ass in prison for profit. And then we find out later, after the fact, that people like Rudy Giuliani were working directly with the prison companies, and his law firm now represents them as lobbyists. Like right now. Mm, right. Um, Million dollar blocks. So again, we want to encourage our listeners who are in uh, the NYC area to please, please, please show your support uh, tomorrow um, as the information was given out. Uh, that will be tomorrow at 3 o'clock p.m. on the steps of City Hall. And then they will uh, march to the U.S. Attorney's Office at 4 o'clock p.m. And there's also going to be a rally outside uh, the MCC at 5 o'clock p.m. And this has been endorsed by uh, several organizations, Reform RICO, Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, who Wren is representing on this call, uh, the Coalition to End Broken Windows, Why Accountability, 
Cop Watch Patrol Unit, El Grito uh, de Sunset Park, Universal Zulu Nation, NYC Campaign for Community uh, Control Over the Police, The Answer Coalition, Ice Free NYC, and BYP 100 NYC, No Separate Justice, Mikasa Nu Asu Casa, uh, Flo Harlem. So uh, definitely they have a lot of grassroots support. Um, not surprising, some of the more well-known names of civil rights organizations are missing from the list, but I'm not surprised there. Um, so, but, you know, I just uh, want to thank Ren and Tag for the work that they are doing up there in NYC, NYC in relation to the Bronx 120, but in general against uh, um towards abolishing modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Uh, I want to give you both an opportunity to give us some final comments as we get ready to conclude this segment. We'll start with the lady first. Uh, Rian, would you uh, leave us with some final comments? Yeah, uh, just to add to what Tag and uh, everyone else said, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, legally, uh, organizing-wise, if there's anyone in the NYC area that wants to get in touch with us, our email is um, iwoc.nyc at riseup.net. That's all. No, no doubt. And I would just add or further emphasize the fact that this is just one expression of the overall targeting and, and war on families, on black communities, non-white communities. Mm -hmm. The fact that you are, or the state rather, is attempting to criminalize associating with your neighbors, with your classmates, with your peers and family members, and not just in this context in New York City, mm -hmm. but in LA and in Chicago and in many other places, these, these, these efforts are uh, extremely dangerous for all of us, and it's just being supported by the propaganda campaigns that um, are, are constant. You know, I, I was just reading an article from a few years ago in which the Daily News uh, attempted to uh, identify eight-year-olds um, playing in the park in a housing project as uh, quote-unquote future gang future gangbangers. You know, so this, this type of targeting and criminalization does not seem to have any floor as far as age is concerned. They're, they're targeting, you know, uh, the most vulnerable of our communities and we, we have to put a stop to it any way that we can because, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's our lives that are, that are at stake out here. Um, so I, 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 would, I would end it there. There, there's, there are just so many issues involved in this, in this case, um, but I, I, I really appreciate, uh, you know, the, the fact that y'all are, are covering it uh, so, so well. And, uh, you know, I, I would just close with, uh, with uh, William Lloyd Garrison's words, which which are uh, no compromise with slavery, no union with slaveholders. Well, thank you. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. 
Well, thank thank you both. Uh, And I know, Tag, that, you know, you are a Black Talk Media Project contributor, and you'll keep us updated so that we can bring um, any new information to our listeners. But I want to wish you both a pleasant evening. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. Peace and uh, always, uh, comrades. Good luck tomorrow. Make it happen, man. Bring the attention that is necessary. Speak truth to power. No doubt, no doubt. What did he say, Scotty? Our, our lives are on the line. Our lives depend on this. That's really how it is out there right now. You're talking about military-style raids. Right. Marching into people's grandmother's house, knocking down doors with guns pointed in children's faces. Where is Leroy? Where is Leroy? There's no Leroy living here. There's a Leroy here. Boom. That's how it goes. You know, this is why earlier today I made a post in BTR community and on Facebook about I'm just really tired of the slavery metaphors when we got real slavery staring at us right in the face and bearing down on our communities and have been so uninterrupted perhaps for a short period of time after the Civil War, uh, but once they got the black codes in place and and the for-profit prisons in place uh, and let the uh, generals, the former Confederate generals, write the 13th Amendment, you know, it, it's been in full force in effect in this country. And I really do not like people com- uh, saying things like, you know, we got these wage slaves. Oh, really? You getting paid a dollar a day? or two cents an hour for your work? Are, are you really a wage slave, or, or, or are you just saying that for dramatic effect? Are you really a slave to technology, or are you just addicted to technology? You know, I'm just really tired of the metaphors about slavery while these people, you know, are, are suffering on the modern-day prison plantations. Right, you got the nerve to use the word but not recognize it when you see it. That is like, wow, dude. You know what I mean? But that's the power of propaganda. Like Tag was speaking on the role of, of, you know, media in sensationalizing these stories and helping to criminalize kids, you know, young children. But as I will point out to people, when did the media not play a role in slavery? in perpetuating slavery and white supremacist ideology. When has mainstream media not played a role? You're absolutely right, Scotty. Um, It's always had to been people coming from the underground to give an alternative narrative of what was really going on on the ground. Like uh, some of the newspapers of the day, for instance, The Liberator, of course, and Black Chronicles, uh, which I happen to have a copy of all of the headlines all the way back to the 1600s. Now, I look at them often for a first-hand perspective of the times, too, to better understand it. But, you know, I, I want to give a shout-out to also the Village Voice Radio. I was just listening to them the other day uh, out there, and they were discussing the differences between prison reform and prison abolition, and I reached out to them and asked them if they would throw in slavery abolition there, too have a discussion about that. I think they'll be talking about it next week, but this week they were just talking about prison reform and prison abolition. But here's the part where you were just, with Fitz and what you were saying about how you were so upset. I get, feel the same way, but I understand that we all got to figure it out eventually. 
we're just so frustrated right now that people ain't on board just yet. Like I heard the brothers talk knowingly about uh, what's going on with these jails and prisons. They even referred to it as slavery. But then they started talking about what can we do to reform it or fix it. And that's that double thing that you know happened because if you're talking about reforming it or fixing it, you are by default legitimizing they, that's what they did with the Thirteenth Amendment, Max. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but isn't that no, what the Thirteenth Amendment represents—a reform of slavery, or, or really a reset? A reset. Uh, it was to the point where it was going to die. Uh, global opinion was against it. They were fighting a damn war with six hundred thousand people had died in a bloody war. They had to do something, and that was too powerful and profitable a demon to just let go and die off. And as abolitionists of the time and sense have said, if you just leave a little seed in the ground of slavery, it's going to grow back up. And we've watched that in our lifetime happen. In just 45 years, we've watched slavery be reborn, not just in America, but globally. That's all it takes. Yes, and it is global. Um, the Correction Corporation, now known as Core Civic and the Geo Group, are global companies. They're just not operating private prisons for profit here in the United States. Uh, they're operating them globally, as, as we spoke about uh, last week with the uh, Green Party being an international political organization. And I really do hope that, um, uh, remind me his name again, David, David, right? David Coleman. Yeah, David Coma, uh, and him and Greg. I hope they are successful in making that part of the Green Party's platform. Somebody needs to make it a platform. You know, you got Cornell West now telling us we should follow Bernie and let him lead a new party of some sorts. But you know, to me, those two are Judas goats. I'm not following either one of them nowhere. Here at New Abolitionist Radio, we were hands-on involved with what was going on regarding the conversation about mass incarceration coming from the uh, Sanders camp and uh, modern-day slavery. We lobbied them personally. I went to their events, talked to their people, talked to their managers, helped to get legislation uh, put into play. And then at the end of the day, we had just been used, really, because they never had any intention of fighting for it. it was like just throwing bones out to a hungry dog. Here's a bone. Hush it, hush it. You know, and that's what I felt like at the end of the day. I'm not following either one of those cats. They, they, I mean, when you're talking about making a new party, and then you're saying, okay, who is going to lead the party? The dude that's been in politics all his life and is a lifelong party member, he's going to lead the party, the new party that's not like the old party. <laughs> and this dude don't believe in, uh, he don't believe in reparations for blacks. Uh, he said that very clearly. He really doesn't have a firm grasp on what's happening with mass incarceration. It's more of a code word for him, something that sells politically and sounds good when he says it. But when pressed in one-on-one conversations about details, he was at a loss. So you could tell it was just campaign rhetoric that he was playing. So I felt used with the Sanders thing. I'm not following him. And as far as Cornell West is concerned, I've spoken about that brother before here on the radio. I don't want to trash him. I just don't trust him. You know, I've seen him explain away the 13th Amendment like he was a slave catcher. <laughs> like he didn't know what it said. And he's supposed to be one of the brightest men on the planet with one of the best educations from the old white universities. Uh, yeah, okay. 
Scotty, yeah, save I, me from myself. Yeah, I, I, I feel you on uh, Sanders and him not being the person uh, that he portrayed himself to be. Does he have some good ideals uh, politically, you know, like with single-payer health care and, and things of that nature? And I'll forever be grateful for him backing, you know, that bill, Justice is Not for Sale. Uh, but since it failed, we just have not been hearing anything about slavery or getting rid of private prisons from him. And he's been out there on this so-called unity you know, a uh, uh, unity uh, tour uh, with Tom Perez, uh, the Obama former labor secretary who didn't have a problem with uh, the uh, slave labor in the prisons and what have you. So, I mean, I, I feel where, where you're coming from uh, on, on that, uh, Max. But, you know, um, all we can do is continue to do what we do and just keep pushing this movement as far as possible and keep doing our best to recruit new abolitionists. Well, with that said, Scotty, uh, we'll take our break. When we come back on the other side, let's go and focus our attention on Wisconsin for a while. Because we've done that before. We need to do it again because of what's happening over there with that village idiot they call a sheriff. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on Black Belt Radio Network.com. We'll take a few messages. We'll be right back. Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, in the chat room on the uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network page, I see strategic medicine. Melanin said that they have reinstated stock risk. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I had to look into that and see if that is in fact. Well, as I understood, what Tag was saying is that they say it's ended, but it has not. You know, they still stopping and frisking. The masters of evolving, right? Once you find something lucrative, you just rename the corporation and you keep doing what you were doing. That's not CCA anymore. Those are the bad guys. We're core civic now. We help you in mental illness cases, things like that. 
Yeah, we know how they roll, Scotty. They don't never let go of anything that's lucrative, no matter how evil it may be. Like say, um, I want to get in uh, Wisconsin because you you reported on this about the man who died in the jail there. He was denied water for seven days. I want to talk about some of the statistics in Wisconsin as well that shows you what's happening here across the United States of America and just how bad it has gotten, how uh, institutionally racist it has become. Uh, the sheriff right now out in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is, of course, Sheriff David Clark, one of my top two people I detest the most. <laughs> I think Scotty probably detests him as much as I do. Uh, like the world really, oh man, it was a bad time when he just, when he got, got here. Things changed drastically. This dude, anyway, let me read this story because I could rant on him endlessly. From the Atlantic Black Star, it says, prosecutors say Milwaukee County jail officers cut off an inmate's water for seven consecutive days before the man died of dehydration. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Assistant District Attorney Kurt Bentley told jurors at an inquest Monday that Terrell Thomas was mentally unstable and unable to ask for help before he died in his cell in April of 2016. Thomas had been placed in solitary confinement after he used a mattress to flood his cell in another jail unit. The jury will issue a verdict on whether criminal charges are warranted in Thomas's death. The jury's recommendation is advisory. Separately, Thomas's children have filed this federal civil suit, saying their father's treatment by Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark and his staff amounts to torture. Uh, you can get this story on New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty, you've talked about this story. Anything to add to it? Um. Yes. Um. This guy, there's actually a criminal inquiry that's going on right now. Um, I think they are just gathering evidence and then will possibly take that to a grand jury there in Milwaukee uh, County. Uh, David Clark is a very unpopular uh, person. Um, I don't think he can no longer get by with just being a black man calling himself a Democrat while actually extolling the virtues of Donald Trump. And and so people have really figured out uh, that this guy, um, you know, is is a a pre a preeminent slave catcher in this country who who don't who I mean, really, this guy is a sociopath. I follow him on Twitter. And this man be up at all time, all times of the night. You know, I sometimes have trouble sleeping. Uh, my body clock gets kind of mixed up, and I'll be up at all times of, of the night. So I'll try to do something. Um, and this guy be up like three a.m. saying something crazy. And I'm like, this guy is, yeah, he's really a sociopath. And so there is a criminal investigation into that. And I won't be satisfied unless they indict him as part of it because, you know, he's at the top and the butt post stop stop with him. And like I had tweeted to him, he never responds to me, but I, like I tweeted to him the other day, I was like, you know, um, Big Mouth Sheriff, I didn't, call, I didn't call him out his name. I said, Sheriff A. Clark always has something to say, but incredibly he's, he's uh, quiet on this case and I mentioned the victim's name which I can't recall at this time uh, I think his last name is Thomas 
uh, Thomas Kelly you're talking about? No, the victim, the guy that they withheld oh, water oh, oh, from. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> you lost me for a minute there, Scotty. My bad. Uh, they, let me pull up the story from the Atlantic Star. It says, uh, Kurt Bentley. Yes, Thomas. Yeah, so, and this man, you had mentioned mental illness right before the break, and his family is saying that this guy was having a mental episode. And just think about it. Just think about being in your cell. They shut the water off, and they have it on video of the deputies shutting the water off of his cell. And then this man becoming, um, I think the proper word is emaciated, you know, looking like a starving Ethiopian or something. And because of the lack of water, I mean, your body is over 80% water. You cannot live without water. I'm surprised that he lasted seven days. Because if I remember correctly, they was like, you know, you can die after three days of being deprived of water. And and then, you know, this man just becoming so weak and then the other prisoners begging, begging these deputies to get this man some water. This was murder. This was not manslaughter. This was not involuntary manslaughter. This was murder. Everybody knows that if you deprive somebody of water for long periods of time, that they are going to die. And so we'll see where this goes. That's what they did to the woman here in South Carolina. We covered her a few weeks ago uh, where they locked her up here in South Carolina. Took her out of a hospital and locked her up, and they deprived her of water. She died of dehydration. Um, You're right. This is murder, Scotty. In a person's mind, listening to this story, you can imagine this happening in the 1800s or the 1700s or the 1600s. It's the same problems we faced then with these sociopathic slave catchers with no concern for human life at all, who are more concerned with their hunting dogs than they are with the men or women that are under their care, that they're being paid to make sure are in safe, secure conditions. And I believe it was last year that you had not just Mr. Thomas die, uh, but you had three other people die as well, including a baby of a pregnant woman. She was pregnant when they arrested her, and then she started giving birth in the jail, and they refused her medical care, and the baby was born in jail and died later as a result of them depriving her of of medical care. To me, that was intentional murder, and I want to know where all you pro-life people are. Yeah, if that had happened outside of a jail or prison, they would be charging somebody with murder. But inside the jail, apparently it's okay, and a jail is a place where you are innocent until proven guilty, if you might remember. So you're talking about a person that ain't even convicted of anything, that is given birth in jail and the baby dies. Yes, that is murder. Uh, and, you know, we, we did some research uh Wisconsin over the years, about four years ago or uh, three years ago, we did the Wisconsin is Ferguson and uncovered some horrific statistics. But I will read some of them here from uh, BET.com of all places. And this came from 2013. So you understand what's going on in the state of Wisconsin and Milwaukee in particular. Wisconsin has the highest black male incarceration rate in the nation, according to a study from the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. The state's 12.8% incarceration rate is double the national rate, which is at 6.7%. 
Oklahoma follows Milwaukee at 9.7% and also surpasses the national rate. Most of the offenses are drug-related charges, according to the UWM Employment and Training Institute study. In the city of Milwaukee, incarceration seems to be an unfortunate fact of life for black men. More than half, one out of more than one out of two of every black man in their 30s, a half of black men in their 40s have been incarcerated in that city. Two-thirds of these incarcerations were concentrated in the city's six porous zip codes, those million-dollar blocks we was telling you about. The prison population in Wisconsin has more than tripled since 1990, fueled by increased government funding for drug enforcement rather than treatment, and prison construction, three-strike rules, mandatory minimum sentencing laws, truth in sentencing, replacing judicial discretion in setting punishments, concentrated policing in minority communities, and state incarceration for minor probation and supervision. The study said, here's some of the key points of the study. I will read them and then leave the rest for you. Check out our new abolitionist radio. It says, because the vast majority of incarcerated black males are of working age, the study said they struggle finding jobs, especially given the recent recession. The study criticized past reports on the state's skill gaps for largely ignoring that population. Mark Maurer, a spokesperson for the sentencing project, said the findings could partly be due to involvement in crime, but also because of the effect of law enforcement policies. So the study found that 40% of incarcerated black males have offenses related to drugs. 40%, like 4 out of 10. Out of all Milwaukee County residents imprisonments related to drugs since 1990, 82% of the offenders have been black males, according to the study. 82% in the entire city, people. While the study also found white male driving while intoxicated offenses are higher than among black males, the opposite is held true for drug offenses. We're going to read part of an article later on about a new study about who does the most drugs and it shows you that these communities are being purposely targeted and uh, the last part here I'll read it says the high black male incarceration rate in Milwaukee has been tied to the decline in black two-parent homes in the city. Past reports say that from 1970 to 2000 the number of black two-parent homes dropped from 64% to 28%. And uh, you can check the rest of it out on New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty? Yeah, it's no secret that, I mean, when you do these different uh, studies, it shows that um, most people, the different categories of people under this racist system all do drugs at the at similar rates. And while I'm not going to sit on this radio program and promote drug use, I will promote pro-choice. I'm pro-choice. If a, an adult wants to put something into their body, whether I agree with it or not, that's their right, and they can deal with the repercussions on their health, okay? But I I don't feel like it is my place to say, hey, I want to lock you up and send you into slavery because you're using a substance that I don't like and that I wouldn't use. And as you point out, they don't put any kind of money into treatment. The, the, uh, most of the money goes into enforcement. And the drug war has been nothing but a new form of the black codes uh, during the so-called Jim Crow era. 
and what have you. And we know Nixon uh, stated, his chief of staff, former chief of staff, stated that they started the drug war to target the blacks, as uh, Michelle Alexander also documents in, in her book. So, you know, for, for those, because I know, Max, there are people out there that say things like, well, just don't do drugs. Well, you know, uh, it, how, what if I tell you to stop eating bacon? Just stop eating bacon. Or stop doing whatever it is you like to do because I don't like you doing it. it. I mean, it's the same thing to me, man. It's all about a matter of free will, having free will. And and so, uh, you know, the drug war is a sham. Uh, as I posted on the page of one of our local newspaper who loves posting all the arrests on drugs, you know, for drugs in this county. And, you know, and, and I was surprised that a majority of the citizens who commented on it agree with me that the drug war is a sham and that the United States is the biggest uh, drug trafficker on the planet. And these are facts. These aren't my opinions. You know, when we did the Wisconsin is Ferguson report studying their prison system, Wisconsin doesn't have much uh, more people in it than South Carolina. About the same amount of people. In South Carolina, our Department of Corrections budget, which is way too much, is near three quarters of a billion dollars a year. In Wisconsin, it's $1.5 billion a year. That's a lot of money pouring into Wisconsin in order for them to have an 82% arrest rate of black men. And this new study that came out shows that what is occurring is that people in general, amongst black and whites, non-Hispanic whites do drugs that are hard drugs at a very high, much higher rate than blacks do. And this was a 12-year study that they did. And if that is the case, that means that you're not going to check, like we talked about the other day, the people that are coming down Wall Street, you're not checking the suburbs, you're parking your ass in the hood, and you're picking from that group of people over and over and over again, while giving a green light to everybody else, white privilege. The study, which took place over 12 years, found that the rates of hard drug abuse was highest among non-Hispanic whites, followed by Hispanics than African Americans. The researchers found that whites were 30 times more likely to have cocaine addictions. 30 times more likely. 50 times more likely. I'm not talking one or two more times. 50 times more likely to develop an opiate use addiction and 18 times more likely to have PCP use addiction than blacks. That is like outrageous. I mean, the reason it's so high is because you ain't arresting them. It's really just that simple. They're just doing it because ain't nobody stopping them. Which is their right. <laughs> hey, you know, again, I am pro-choice when it comes to drugs or any other substance that an adult uh, makes a decision to use as long as they are not harming another individual. That's the way I look at it, Max. But one thing about Wisconsin we should point out, and we have reported in the past, um, Scott Walker, is he still the governor? I believe he's still the governor of Wisconsin. Uh, but he uh, started off in the Wisconsin uh, state legislature, and he was solidly backed by, guess who? 
private prison companies and private prison companies sponsored much of the slave uh, 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 catching legislation that's in place that has led uh, places like Milwaukee County to be the have the most incarcerated black males on the planet. Yeah, uh, he, matter of fact, he had this one thing where he was working on youth detention facilities there in Wisconsin and uh, looking at getting that money that way, like Chris Christie has been doing. The incarceration of teenagers is a highly lucrative thing. I mean, when you're talking about thirty, forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars a year to incarcerate an adult, children, you can get as much as three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. The national average is around a hundred and twelve to one hundred fifteen thousand dollars a year just to incarcerate one teenager. That is a huge booming business from the perspective of a slave catcher right now. Yeah, so Wisconsin, you know, um, uh, I've been thinking about Rob lately as I have not seen him call in uh, to the program or or heard him on uh, any of the other programs that he normally uh, calls in to, but he lives in Wisconsin. He's also a victim of modern-day slavery and human trafficking, and the things that he would just tell us or share with us that's going on in that county, it's a very horrific place to live. Especially if you're a black yeah, man. Yeah, uh, shout, shout out to my sister Mary Watkins, who was out in that area. And uh, hopefully, uh, Rob is okay. You're right. We haven't heard from him in a while. And he was in distress the last time that we heard from him. Well, Max, you, you want to move on uh, to another story? Um, just want to yes, remind. Sir, I just want to remind listeners coming up at 10 o'clock p.m. will be Mind, Body, and Spirit Radio. Uh, hosted by Black Rose and Featherlight. Oh, no doubt, Scotty. Uh, if you want, if you'd like to cover the next story, I want to tell them about the uh, epidemic of prosecutors, uh, prosecutorial misconduct that's coming out of L.A. And we've covered L.A. sufficiently over the years to know that that has been the case, and these charges have been put forward on a number of occasions with, uh, you know, uh, overwhelming proof and evidence but uh, apparently there's a good old boys club going on in the prosecutorial pool out there in California in LA uh, and they are covering up a lot of trash. Just what we talk about with exonerations and the stories of prosecutors in California hiding evidence, presenting false evidence or uh, doing things that are just outright illegal has been overwhelming so, uh, if you have that one up there, Scotty? Um, yeah, is this today? the story from 2015? Um, yes, it's, it points out the epidemic. As I said, we've been covering these over the years. We're kind of reiterating uh, uh, now prosecutorial misconduct that yeah. is emanating out of our uh, our prosecutorial pool, pools across America. Now, see, this, this is just ignorance on the voters' part part of this story right here this is where you become where identity politics especially for black people gets us in trouble or uh being on the democratic plantation and thinking that you know they really care about people of color when they don't uh but um excuse me at the time kamala harris was the attorney general um, she's a person of color, a black what woman. What is she now? 
she is now a senator, a U.S. senator. Um, yeah, she's a U.S. senator. She's not in Congress. She's a U.S. senator now. So she's been rewarded for arguing against the release of prisoners to the Supreme Court by saying if we let all these prisoners go, who's going to fight our fires? Where, how are we going to replace this cheap labor pool? Which is what her, her office argued in federal court. So she was rewarded by that. Apparently, in, in, in that district that elected her to U.S. Senate had no idea what this, who this woman is and what she stand for. They just looked at her. Oh, that's a black woman. She's a Democrat. Let's run out and vote for her. You know, because she's about justice. She knows what it's like to be a part of the oppressed class. See, this is the kind of stuff that gets you in trouble. All right? So... The hearing seemed largely routine, and a state prosecutor approached the lectern. This is from the L.A. Times. Deputy Attorney General Kevin R. Vienna was there to urge three judges on the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to uphold murder convictions against Johnny Baca for two 1995 killings in Riverside County. Other courts had already determined that prosecutors had presented false evidence in Baca's trial, but upheld the verdicts anyway. Vienna had barely started his argument when the pummeling uh, began. Uh, give me just a second as I try to navigate this site. Very busy site. Lots of movement. Uh, Judge Alex. Okay, matter of fact, let's go ahead and give a listen uh, to them blasting Attorney General Kamala D. Harris. See if I can get this to play here. That's about a 40-minute video. We'll get some of it. Oh, is it? Okay. Yes. Uh, it says it begins around the 1550 mark when they start calling her out. All right. Um, this site is really... All right. Cool. It, 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 it's really busy. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm having trouble. Okay, here we go. All right, let's see if we can get it to load up. We'll jump to the 1550 mark so we can hear what these judges had to say about the prosecutorial misconduct and the lack of any kind of discipline um, by the attorney general. So give me just a second. I will get there. Okay, here we go. Let's see. 1550. Just a second. I apologize. Websites have so much going on that it's hard to navigate. Yeah, especially like Atlantic Black Star, man, the ads and stuff that are going on, the videos that pop up automatically, things like that. We'll hear from the state. Good morning, Your Honor. May it please the court. Magistrate Judge Wall said that this case leaves a sour taste in his mouth. It certainly should. Uh, a number of things happened that should have not happened, and we're not here to defend them. Do you concede, let me just start right out, do you concede that uh, Mr. Spira lied on the stand? I don't, I, I am not certain that he lied. I think he had some genuine confusion about what happened at the sentencing hearing, but because he, he referred uh, in his testimony at the, in the evidentiary hearing in the district court, he said there were discussions off the record and on the record. I think he is, I think he uh, is either correct or firmly believes that there was a misunderstanding among the parties about a 
change in the law that affected the number of sentence credits that he could get uh, following his conviction for voluntary manslaughter. So you, so you don't concede that he lied? I, I think it's not clear. I, but, but I certainly recognize that uh, Magistrate Judge Waltz thinks he, he lied in the well, state the, court. The Court of Appeals concluded he lied. testimony, whether or not he did it intentionally? I, I don't, th- I, I, as a central matter, I, I don't think it matters greatly whether Mr. Sparrow lied or whether he was mistaken. The Court of Appeal was correct and did not condone the fact that uh, the jury was misled about the circumstances of Mr. Baca's testimony. Uh, that is, uh, it, it is, it was incorrect at the time of Baca's second trial uh, to say uh, that uh, um, that Melendez had never asked for a benefit. Indeed, his counsel quite clearly, clearly had asked for a benefit. And it was incorrect to say that he'd never received a benefit because the, the trial court made clear that its consideration of the benefit was that uh, he had testified at length. Yeah. Um, Should we go forward on the assumption that he lied? That's the way I read the Court of Appeal opinion. The Court of Appeal, it seems, as I read that, says that uh, Mr. Spiro lied on the stand. Well, they, they called it fantasy, but I think it's, it's certainly clear that they thought his uh, testimony was inconsistent with the actual facts. Has he been prosecuted for perjury? He hasn't been prosecuted for perjury. And why is that? I, I, I don't know the answer to that, Your Honor. Uh, you know, it's a little disconcerting when the state puts on evidence... Uh, the evidence turns out to be fabricated. Uh, nothing happens to the lawyer, and nothing happens to the witness. Uh, and so I have to sort of doubt the sincerity of the state when it says this was a big mistake. Uh, I, I would think that if somebody lied on the stand right there in a criminal case, that the first thing uh, uh, that would happen is that there would be a prosecution of the witness, and if the lawyer had any complicity in it, that lawyer would get disbarred. I, I, Has there been any effort in that regard? I I don't disagree with your statement that uh, perjury should be be prosecuted. I do disagree with the premise that perjury occurred because, as I said, I'm not sure. I think uh, Spiro was confused at his testimony. Well, the Court of Appeal basically said it occurred. The State Court of Appeal. And then analyzed the prejudice. Yes, Your Honor, although if I might note one thing, and that is uh, uh, we... How about the lawyer? Pardon me? How about the lawyer? Which lawyer? Mr. The, the prosecutor who put on the... Vinegrad? Yeah. Mr. Vinegrad's retired now, um, and he, uh, he, he never was disciplined either for Baca 1, uh, where he was uh, severely criticized for uh, the evidence that he put on about Baca's prior conviction, uh, prior child sex conviction. Uh, and, uh, and why I, is that? Why was he not... The- Okay, I'm going to stop it there because the the website is just very busy. But what they were talking about was the prosecutor knowingly putting on a person uh, who said that he hired Baca to murder somebody and it turned out to be a false testimony and the person was not prosecuted for perjury and the prosecutor wasn't disciplined but this is not just focusing on this one case but there was a pattern of prosecutorial misconduct malfeasance criminal uh, conspiracies to throw people into slavery using falsified evidence and nothing ever happens to these people they're allowed to retire draw their little pensions and probably sitting somewhere on a cabin on the lake 
ready to go fishing. And so, again, this is why it is important. If you're going to participate in politics, and I know politics isn't everybody's thing. In fact, the majority of people in this country do not vote. But if you're going to vote, you ought to know these sort of things uh, or these involvements that the candidates uh, that you're voting for uh, play the role in. And Kamala Harris played a role in this. She was the the chief law enforcement officer in California. Again, I already uh, stated to you that she are, when there was a case brought before the U.S. Supreme Court about overcrowding in prisons, which resulted in the Supreme Court uh, telling them, ordering them to uh, reduce overcrowding in California prisoners. And her office argued that, hey, we can't, what will we do for cheap labor? In other words, slave labor. What will we do? And then all of this prosecutorial misconduct going on in the state, and yet none of these prosecutors were, were disciplined. But yet, People, enough people voted for this woman to now make her part of the U.S. Senate. See, yeah, this she, is, wrote, uh, she ran on this uh, idea that she was going in to fight private prisons. These are quotes from her very page, her own page, Kamala Harris on Twitter. And we but know how, did. Max, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. And what was their remedy, as we reported on, to to comply with the Supreme Court order. Did they let elderly prisoners go? Did they let nonviolent so-called drug offenders go? No. They hired the GEO group, which we heard the GEO group talk about it before it was made public on one of their earnings calls that we spy on. That's what they did. And she wrote uh, she rode in on this train of fighting uh, for police reform, criminal justice reform. She's quoted as saying private prisons house 70% of immigrants awaiting enforcement. We must put an end to the prison industrial complex. She said, the truth is private prison contracts only benefit the corporations that run them. So I would recommend following the money. Well, we did follow the money, Kamala. And we talked about it here on New Abolitionist Radio, like Scotty said. Uh, you, your department pushed back against a federal order to expand an early parole program, arguing that it would deplete your stock of cheap prison labor, especially inmates who fight wildfires. And you even put a value on people's lives, saying it was a billion dollars in salaries that California would have to pay if they didn't use prison slave labor. See, that's that political fork tongue going on. Say one thing, do another. Let prosecutors get away with destroying people's lives and then talk about how you're going to fight against that. This is why I, you know, as I was listening to uh, Tanya Free and Friends earlier today and they were talking about the need for black unity and, excuse me, Matt, over here about to choke, man. I'm sorry. Um, what was I saying, Max? I'm sorry. About unity? Yes, they were discussing black unity today and the need for black unity so that we can, you know, uh, solve the problems that ails us. And I was just thinking to myself, and I said it before, 
I don't unify with people based on skin color because then that means then I'll be unifying with someone like Kamala Harris. I would rather unify with people based on truth and justice. That's what I'm looking to unify with people around, not skin color. Okay, while while I am a proud black man and strongly have always strongly identified myself with the black community, I know that's a fallacy to think that we can unify with people solely based on skin color when we have what I term proxy racists who are helping to continue modern-day slavery and human trafficking. And like you said, Max, you know, they'll say they'll say something in public as they're campaigning, but they're saying something else in court, in her case, in trying to keep the slaves on the plantation. Indeed. Uh, in this article that came out from Occupy Wall Street, where they say how to purchase prisoners, they tell you how it's done, which is what we are seeing these uh, former Department of Justice employees actually do. They're making these transitions from going from public life involved, whether it be in politics or the Department of Justice, and then taking that expertise and joining prison companies. You know, uh, they say beyond the model of legislation produced by Alex, CCA also influences government by hiring former politicians and infiltrating state agencies with its own employees. Companies chief correction officer Harley G. Lappin, for example, joined CCA after 25 years with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, serving as the agency's director during his final eight years there. Perhaps not coincidentally, Lappin is the writer of the aforementioned letter offering to buy states detention centers. That's how they do it. These lobbyists, they go in and they promise these people jobs at the end of their tenure. And then you bring them in as lobbyists. And the next thing you know, you're hearing someone like Rudy Giuliani, who now is working with private prisons, talk about how black people are criminals and helping to put together policies indirectly that lead to mass arrests like uh, what's happening now with the raids at I just wish people, Max, would do their research, man. That's all. I just want people to research. If you're going to participate in politics, be a responsible voter. And just don't be casting your vote based on a skin color or a letter behind somebody's name. Research these people to see what they have actually done as opposed to what they're telling you. Yeah. Yeah, and then you can look at some of these groups that are supposed to be out there representing justice, the Constitution, the law, and see what they're doing. And you can see uh, what direction we're going in and how many FKs people actually give here in America Word. with the Supreme Court decision that just came out recently in regards to the testimony of a police in this situation where it's his word versus yours. And it doesn't matter how upstanding a citizen you are. It doesn't matter any kind of credentials. It doesn't matter if you don't have any drugs in your system or if you're not armed or anything. According to this new Supreme Court decision, if a cop shoots you in the back and you are unarmed and the only witnesses there are you and him, it's your word, it's his word against yours, he wins every time. There's not even a need for a hearing. Literally, you don't need a hearing. The cop said it. It's true. End of conversation. He shot you because he needed to shoot you. That's the new Supreme Court 
ruling that was just announced Monday. Uh, and it's regarding this case of Mr. Salazar Lamont, the lower court decision holding Salazar Lamont will not even receive a full trial, will stand without the Supreme Court hearing the case. Salazar Lyman, I guess, versus City of Houston turns upon a very real dispute over just how an officer decided that shooting an unarmed man in the back was the correct course of action. As Justice Sonia Sotomayor explains, Salazar Lamont Eventually, the officer tried to put Salazar Lamont in handcuffs, but the drunk driver struggled free and started to walk back to his truck. That's where the two men's stories significantly diverge. According to Salazar Lamont, Sotomayor writes the cop shot him immediately, at most within seconds after commanding him to stop walking. The officer, by contrast, claims that Salazar Lamont raised his hands towards his waistband as if for a weapon, shortly before the officer pulled the trigger. It's not at all clear which one of these men is telling the truth, though Sotomayor rarely arches notes in a footnote that, uh, rather archly noted in a footnote that some commentators have observed the increasing frequency of incidents in which unarmed men allegedly reach for empty waistbands when facing armed officers. But under a fairly basic legal concept taught to every first-year law student, this lack of clarity should entitle Salazar Lamont to a full trial to determine what happened. Uh, you can read the rest on New Abolitionist Radio. It's pretty much cut and dry. The Supreme Court has decided, in the case of the officer's word against yours, the officer is going to win before mm. a trial even occurs, hence making a trial unnecessary. Well, Max, um, I think we should go ahead and jump to uh, um, our uh, segments um, because we only got like 15 minutes left. Yep. Yeah. Okay, indeed, brother. I'm sorry about that. I carried that a little further over than I shouldn't and uh, forgot. I'll share the stories about what's going on the jails in Rikers and Alabama's and the prisons where women are being forced to have sex with officers or pads, tampons, like their bargaining chips. Make sure you check that out on New Abolition. Again, that's one of those stories that show you that everything you think about that went on uh, on plantations pre-1865 are still going on today. <laughs> right. And the other story that people should check out is the story that you shared from Dallas where the 18-year-old boy, uh, the information just recently came out. There's a video, audio showing that these cops were repeatedly tasing him in his groin laughing about it and talking about how they were going to kill him an 18 year old uh, kid 5 foot tall and the justice department helped cover it up helped cover it up it's a damn shame man it's just a damn shame well we'll go into our first segment of final of the evening and it is a writer of the 21st century underground railroad and this week, uh, our story comes out of the New York Times, and it says, Louisiana has dismissed all charges. Oh, by the way, this is from April 20th of 2017. Louisiana has dismissed all charges against a man who spent several years on death row. After his infant son died in 2012, in a case that drew national attention to a parish that sentenced young black men to death at an unusually high rate. 
Rodriguez Crawford, 28, a resident of Caddo Parish, Louisiana, in the northwestern corner of the state, was sentenced to death in 2013 after prosecutors argued that he had suffocated his son. But Louisiana Supreme Court threw out his conviction in November after finding that the jury selection in the case may have been racially biased. <laughs> mm. Mr. Crawford was released from prison later that month. In a statement announcing that it would not retry Mr. Crawford, the Caddo Parish District Attorney's Office acknowledged evidence suggesting that at the time of his death, his son had pneumonia and bacteria in his blood that indicated sepsis. The state said that it would not meet the burden of proof to gain a new conviction for Mr. Crawford. Cecilia Capel, one of the of Mr. Crawford's lawyers, described him in an interview on Thursday as someone who should never have been facing such a stark sentence to begin with. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you. Welcome to Freedom, Brother Enriquez Crawford. Man. Welcome to Freedom. To killing your own child and then sitting on death row mm -hmm. behind an all-white jury. Wow. Disgusting place hey. we live, isn't it? Yeah. Terrible man, and people think that this isn't happening in Arkansas. They're killing men now by the bunches. Some of them who are potentially innocent, like this man right here. And, and um, that I, story I, in Arkansas, they're refusing. They refuse to even test the uh, DNA evidence that was uncovered. Oh, we we ain't gonna bother with that. Let's just go on and kill them. You know, let's just put right? them to death. You know, no, they've already killed one man. Yeah, we, all because the drugs that they use now. The company will not supply anymore, and the drugs they have are about to or have expired. They killed the first man four minutes before the drugs officially expired, like the drugs would blow up. It just wouldn't be legal anymore, and they killed the first man four minutes before it happened. And very, they killed very. two in a row, which is the first time they've done anything like that anywhere in this country in the past 18 years. Again, I don't mean to sound like a cynic, but... When I hear people talk about how great the United States is, I'm like, man, where where do you where do you live? With your well, head buried in the sand. But yeah, let let's move to the next one. Um, the next segment, the history of segment, rebellion. Freedom's sake. Yeah, the history of rebellion. Uh, this week it's Gabriel's conspiracy, 1800, born prophetically in 1776 on the Prosser plantation. Now remember, this is Gabriel Prosser. Just six miles north of Richmond, Virginia, and home to, use the term loosely, to 53 slaves, a slave named Gabriel would hatch a plot with freedom as his goal that was emblematic of the era which he lived. A skilled blacksmith who stood more than six feet tall and dressed in fine clothes when he was away from the forge, Gabriel cut an imposing figure. But what distinguished him more than his physical bearing was his ability to read and write. Only 5% of southern slaves were literate. Other slaves looked up to men like Gabriel, and Gabriel himself found inspiration in the French and St. Dominique revolutions of 1789. He imbibed the political fervor of the era and concluded, albeit erroneously, that Jeffersonian democratic ideology encompassed the interests of black slaves and white working men alike, who, united, could oppose, could oppose the oppressive Federalist merchant class. Man, it was by capitalism then, wasn't it? Spurred on by two liberty-minded French soldiers, he met in a tavern. Gabriel began to formulate a plan, enlisting his brother Solomon and another servant on the Prosser plantation in his fight for freedom. Word quickly spread to Richmond 
other nearby towns and plantations and well beyond the Petersburg and Norfolk via free and enslaved blacks who worked the waterways. Gabriel took a tremendous risk in letting so many people learn of his plans. It was necessary as a means of attracting supporters, but it also exposed him to the possibility of betrayal. Regardless, Gabriel persevered, aiming to rally at least a thousand slaves to his banner of death or liberty, an inversion of the famed cry of the slaveholding revolutionary Patrick Henry. With incredible daring and naivety, Gabriel determined to march to Richmond, take the armory, and hold Governor James Monroe hostage until the merchant class bent to the rebels' demands of equal rights for all. He planned his uprising for August 30th and publicized it well. But on that day, one of the worst thunderstorms in recent memory pummeled Virginia, washing away roads and making travel all but impossible. Undeterred, Gabriel believed that only a small band was necessary to carry out the plan, but many of his followers lost faith, and he was betrayed by a slave named Pharaoh, who feared retribution if the plot failed. The rebellion was barely underway when the state captured Gabriel and several co-conspirators, 25 African Americans worth about $9,000 or so, money that cash-strapped Virginia surely thought it could ill afford, were hanged together before Gabriel went to the gallows and was executed alone. We here at New Abolitionist Radio remember the rebellion of Gabriel's conspiracy. Salute. Salute, brother. There you have it. The last one is up to you, Scotty Reed. Our abolitionists in profile, remembering those from the past and present who have given it all in order to fight against legalized slavery and human trafficking. Our abolitionist in profile is William Steele. He was born October the 7th, 1821, and transitioned on July 14th, 1902. Uh, he was an African-American abolitionist in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, conductor on the Underground Railroad, a businessman, writer, historian, and civil rights activist. Before the American Civil War, Steele was chairman of the Vigilance Committee of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society and directly aided fugitive slaves and kept records to help families reunite. After the war, he remained an important businessman and philanthropist, as well as used his meticulous records to write an account of the underground system and the experiences of many refugee slaves entitled the Underground Railroad Records. In 1847, three years after settling in Philadelphia, he began working as a clerk for the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society when Philadelphia abolitionists organized a vigilance committee to directly aid escaped slaves who had reached the city. Steele became its chairman. By the 1850s, Steele was one of the leaders of Philadelphia's African-American community. In 1855, he participated in the nationally covered rescue of Jane Johnson, a slave who sought help from the society in gaining freedom while passing through Philadelphia with her master, John Hill Wheeler, newly appointed U.S. minister to Nicaragua. Steele and others liberated her and her two sons under Pennsylvania law, which held that slaves brought to the free state voluntarily by a slaveholder could choose freedom. 
Her master sued him and five other African Americans for assault and kidnapping in a high-profile case in August 1855. Jane Johnson returned to Philadelphia from New York and testified in court as to her independence in choosing freedom, winning acquittal for Steele and for others, and reduced sentences for the last two. In 1859, Steele challenged the segregation of the city's public transit system, which had separate seating for whites and blacks. He kept lobbying, and in 1865, the Pennsylvania legislature passed a law to integrate streetcars across the street. Often called the father of the Underground Railroad, Steele helped as many as 800 slaves escape to freedom. He interviewed each person and kept careful records, including a brief biography and the destination for each, along with any aliases adopted. He kept his records carefully hidden, but knew the accounts would be critical in aiding the future reunion of family members who became separated under slavery, which he had learned when he aided his own brother Peter, whom he had never met before. Still worked with other Underground Railroad agents operating in the South, including in Virginia ports, nearby Delaware and Maryland, and in many counties in southern Pennsylvania. His network to freedom also included agents in New Jersey, New York, New England, and Canada. Conductor Harriet Tubman traveled through his office with fellow passengers on several occasions during the 1850s. Steele also forged a connection with the family of John Brown and sheltered several of Brown's associates fleeing the 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry. Ferry. New Abolitionist Radio salutes William Steele. Salute. William Still is one of the characters being portrayed now in Underground. The, uh, I was thinking that, that man, that they the probably based that now. series on his book, on his records. Right, right. Yeah, he's being well played. Oh, he was being well played uh, in that series. Um, if you haven't seen Underground, you should check it out. In any case, Scotty, uh, we have uh, completed another broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio here in our fifth year, coming up on our anniversary, uh, June 13th. I believe, and uh, I think we're gonna have a party that day, brother. <laughs> because uh, it's worth celebrating. Most certainly, most certainly, and it's certainly been a pleasure working with you and Johanna, who couldn't join us tonight uh, over over the years, and just doing our best to make the public aware that slavery was never abolished and it is still with us. And it's going to take a similar effort like William Steele's and, and the other abolitionists of his day to finally uh, bring a conclusion to their work through our hands. Amen, brother. Amen. So uh, I know you've got the next program coming up here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. I want to thank everybody for listening this evening. I want to thank our guests who came in uh, as well. And I want to remind you that our new abolitionist radio, you can find the page where you'll get myself and Tribal Rain this Saturday in Asheville, North Carolina, working with the local Black Lives Matter chapter, as well as with the local Quakers organization and citizen advocates and activists. We'll be reviewing the film the 13th and then having an open discussion afterward, which includes poetry. So uh, if you're in the Asheville area, check us out there. The link is on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. Scotty, any last words? 
Yes, I just want to thank Tag and Ren for joining us uh, during the first hour to highlight the plight of the Bronx 120, a group of young people who are being uh, targeted with a, I wouldn't call it a new tactic, but being targeted with RICO charges when RICO charges were originally uh, brought about to target real international criminal organizations like the mafia but now they are using them to target uh young people um so just want to thank them for their work and want to remind you of their rally that will take place tomorrow at the uh courthouse um steps of the courthouse in nyc and we have also posted that information on New Abolitionist Radio page. So thank you bo- uh, again to our guests tonight. Max. Yes, sir. Um, remember, August 19, 2017, the Millions for Prisoners March on Human Rights March on Washington. If you're not involved yet, it's getting late. Get involved now. Show your support. Sign up on the page. I am weubuntu.com. Uh, Register your organizations as supporters and make plans to attend the event. In order to have a Millions of Prisoners March on Washington, we need millions. So come on out, bring everybody you know, bring the kids, bring the uh, side chicks, the side guys, bring them all. (laughs) I'm just saying. So funny, but I'm just saying. And remember this above everything else. Abolition is a reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times at this time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up when famine claims millions when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection